Nobody really knows the exact date of Jesus' birth, and yet that one event divides world history. Uh, no, he, Jesus never wrote a book, he never composed some poetry or a song, yet nobody's life has been, and teaching has been the subject um, and the greater output of songs and poetry and music and films and really every form of, of art. He never raised an army and yet millions of people have laid down his life or their lives for his cause. He's never traveled out of Palestine. He never spoke to more than a few thousand people at a time. His ministry only lasted a few years and yet worldwide millions know his name, heard his words, and have benefited or has impacted by his ministry. He only ever visited two countries in his life, and yet today a Christian missionary organization, um, Mission Aviation Fellowship, claims to fly to more countries than any commercial airline in the world today. Um, he never had a formal education, yet thousands of universities, colleges, schools, have been founded in his name. He's never owned any property. He had to borrow a boat to sail in. He had to borrow a donkey to ride on. He had to borrow a coin to make an illustration. Uh, yet today, hundreds of trust funds and thousands of buildings have been erected for the sole purpose of teaching his followers and adding to their number. He was relatively unknown during his life, during his day, and yet the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, under the entry of Jesus, runs to over 30,000 words. And given that last statistics, you know the age of my resource, uh, came from a, a little wonderful book by John Blanchard called, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? But we are in Matthew 13, so if you're there, please, or if you have your Bibles, please turn there. And really looking at Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven through parables. Uh, parables which revealed new truth about the kingdom of heaven as it relates to the period between, the first, between His first and second coming. To those who have ears to hear and to hide that very same truth to those who did not have ears to hear. And uh, so Jesus taught about the kingdom, and he says that the kingdom of heaven will at this time be receive a mixed reception, so to speak. There would be some who uh, reject him or receive the seed of the word, as with the parable of the sower, uh, and then most won't receive it, and some would. We also saw another parable about the mixed nature of the kingdom at this time, with the parable of the tares among wheat. And today we come to two sets of parables teaching about really the expansion of the kingdom and also the estimation of the kingdom. Uh, the parable of the expansion would be, or the parables regarding the expansion of the kingdom would be the parable uh, of the mustard seed and of leaven. And the parable regarding the estimation of the kingdom um, is the parable of hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. So if you are in Matthew 13, please turn to verse 31 and just follow along as I read these parables for us. Verse 31 reads, And he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables and did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And just move your eyes across to verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure. And the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. 
And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word. Thank you that you speak to us today through the ministry of your word. Thank you for your spirit who illuminates our minds, quicken our hearts, Lord, so that we may hear, that we may believe, and that we may act on what we believe. Lord, we thank you for your word today to us and, and pray that it will find fruitful soil, Lord that each and every one here, Lord, would be ministered to you. Lord, for those who do not know you, Lord, that they would be drawn to you. They would come to repentance and faith in you. And Lord, for those who do know you and have confessed you as their Lord and Savior, Father, that you would encourage and build them up, uh, Lord, for the work that you have for them in your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so first of all, we have a set of parables teaching on the expansion of the kingdom. Uh, The kingdom is like a mustard seed. And really, Jesus is contrasting here the the growth of the kingdom, comparing it to the smallness of a mustard seed uh, in comparison to what uh, it grows into the greatness of that plant. Now, the mustard seed uh, in Palestine or in, in Israel was the smallest known agricultural seed to them. Uh, we, of course, know that it is not the smallest seed in the world, that there's a, a smaller seed of the wild orchid that was much smaller. But this, to, to Jesus' audience and to the agricultural community of his time, the mustard seed was the smallest seed that they uh, were aware of. And of course, this saying, comparing something to a mustard seed, was, was a bit of a proverbial saying, and it would, it would equate whatever is small and, and what would grow rapidly or quickly or, or largely uh, would then be equated to a mustard seed. And, and Jesus used this very illustration in regards to faith when his disciples could not heal the boy who was a demon possessed uh, as his father was brought them to them, uh, they asked Jesus, why could they not uh, uh, deliver this boy? And Jesus said to them in Matthew 7, 20, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. And really, so again, he's comparing the the smallness of a mustard seed to the greatness of what can be uh, achieved through faith in God, uh, praying for the things of God. And so now this tiny mustard seed uh, in Palestine would grow to quite a substantial tree. Most mustard varieties grow to a sort of a small to medium-sized shrub, but not those in Palestine. They grow very large and very quickly, up to about four to five meters in height. Uh, And so later in the season, when when the plant sort of matures a little bit more and the branches stiffen, then birds would come and, and of course, find a good perch in in the trees, find some shade from the sun and some shelter perhaps from some storms or even a good safety uh, environment for their their nests. Because of of, uh, the parable of uh, the the sower going before, uh, some interpret this parable as also speaking to the mixed nature of the kingdom. Uh, seeing that the birds are, are evil, since it was the birds who came and snatched away the seed in the parable of the sower, when the, the seed that fell on the pathway, and he equated basically the birds as being of Satan. And so they would interpret um, this parable as really the birds within the trees are evil influences that, that affect the kingdom. Uh, but this 
uh, interpretation, I think, should be rejected because it goes against the thrust of the parable. Remember, a parable teach one main truth, and the focus here is really on the expansion of the kingdom, not the mixed nature of the kingdom. The kingdom will grow from, from a very small beginnings uh, into a very large domain. And so the tree in this parable presents the kingdom, and the birds are most likely the Gentile nations uh, for the, that will flock to the tree, not to hinder the tree or to harm the tree, but actually to, to enjoy the blessings that the tree provides, the kingdom tree, that is, a place of shelter, a place of, of safety, a place of shade. And so the picture of, of birds nesting in trees, uh, really that meaning uh, can be drawn from, from the Old Testament, because there's a number of passages where we see something similar. In Ezekiel 17, verse 23, uh, Jesus, well, God spoke through the prophet about God planting a tree. Ezekiel 17, God says that He will restore the kingdom um, of David, that He would take a shoot uh, of the line of David, and He would plant it on a mountain height. And uh, that's Shoot will grow up into a large tree and produce branches and fruit and become abundant uh, and, and become a, 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 a tree with abundant fruit and a splendid cedar, it says. And then every kind of bird would, would find a nest in there. And so it really speaks in, in Ezekiel 17 of uh, the restored Israel becoming a blessing for the nations. Uh, this, this uh, same picture is, find, is found in, in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. Uh, again, we saw a picture of the tree, and this time the tree is equated to Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, which will flourish and, and grow into a large tree, producing abundant food and shelter to the birds of the air and other living creatures. And so again, this picture of a tree with, with, with birds flocking into it is really a picture of blessing and protection, not evil influences on the tree. And so this message of the parable is that through, though the kingdom is very small at the time of Jesus' day, it will grow and expand and basically brings blessing to the nations. And this, again, this principle of something being small, being blessed by God, we see elsewhere in Scripture uh, that is Zechariah, in the days of Zechariah, when uh, Israel was brought back from, Ez, uh, from exile and they were rebuilding the temple, and uh, some were disappointed with the, 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 the size and the splendor of that temple when they thought back of the, of the temple of Solomon, and, and really the Lord reminded them not to despise small beginnings. Um, of course, this is also in line with what uh, Daniel saw in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the big statue with its heads of gold, its arms and breasts of silver, its torso of, of, of bronze and its legs of, of iron and his feet of, of clay and iron. And then he saw a little stone cut from the mountain and struck this, this statue on its feet and really destroying it, crushing it, crushing all of those kingdoms. And of course, that is a picture of Christ and the coming kingdom that He will put up and basically will, although it's very small, it's said that this little stone grew up into a big mountain that filled the whole earth. So, so a similar kind of idea there. And so the kingdom of heaven at the time of Jesus was, was tiny. I mean, it was Jesus and a few of His disciples, uh, really the size of a mustard seed, if you like. And as... Uh, time progressed, and after Jesus ascended to heaven, of course, the, the number in the kingdom grew to about 120 as they gathered in the, in the upper room waiting uh, for, the, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And, and then after that, the kingdom just expanded very quickly uh, to, to a large area, really all over the known world at that time. Uh, and today, it has reached pretty much almost every nation, every tongue, and every tribe have heard of the gospel of the kingdom, and many have repented of their sin and believed in, in Jesus Christ. And so, in, in one sense, we can, we can even say that this parable was prophetic, that Jesus, while He was teaching the parable, was, was prophesying the, the growth of, 
of his kingdom. Uh, Matthew 24, 14 says, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so the parable just emphasized this dramatic expansion of the kingdom from, from very small beginnings. Jesus then went on, having, having uh, uh, emphasized the growth of the kingdom, now speaks or used the parable about leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. Uh, and again, really in essence, it's teaching a similar principle, and that is the expansion of the kingdom. But this time, uh, it is the, the, the expanding influence that the kingdom would have. Uh, leaven here is, uh, is, is, is put into a large batch of dough, three pecks of dough. It really equates to about 36 and a half liters of dough. I don't know how you measure dough in liters, but anyway, uh, it's a massive batch for today's standard if you want to bre uh, bake bread at home, but not for those days uh, because bread was a staple of, uh, and it was obviously uh, eaten by everybody by really at every mealtime. And so leaven here is used to, uh, well, leaven is, is what it does. It, it permeates and it ferments a lump of dough. Um, then that's the nature of leaven. It, it permeates, it spreads, uh, and it affects every bit of the dough it comes in contact with. It influences it. Uh, it ferments the flour, creating just thousands of little bubbles, uh, producing a much lighter, airy dough, which bakes into this beautiful loaf of bread, crunchy on the outside, Soft on the inside. Very nice to eat. Uh, especially out of a hot oven with a good dollop of butter on it melting. And the smell, oh, the smell. Uh, but I digress. Uh, leaven has been used for baking bread from time immemorial. Uh, even Israel uh, ate leavened bread most of the time. Uh, there were some offerings that they had to bring and certain feasts that they had to keep in which leaven was not permitted. But some of their offerings actually had to contain leavened bread. Uh, some of their peace offerings consisted of leavened bread and some of the, the new grain offerings also were to be offered with, with leavened bread. So leaven was not um, always evil. Uh, it, was, it was not always seen as, as, a, as a bad influence as in many of the other passages. And so the, the key idea here is, is that the kingdom will expand through the influence that it exerts on, first of all, on those who are in the kingdom, the sons and daughters of the kingdom, and then through them to the world. Um, the kingship of Christ in the life of a believer first has to penetrate and permeate and really changes every aspect of our soul. And then when that happens, the, the kingship of our Lord would influence the lives of others through us. It exerts this, this influence on others. Uh, for it changes our attitudes, it changes our thinking, it changes our action and our words. And so the, the influence of the kingship of Christ on our lives really affect every area of life. I mean, just if we, if we look at, at the world today, the arts, literature, science, business, commerce, government, all of that has been influenced by those who are in the kingdom of, of heaven. And so every activity done by one who is in submission to Christ influences others. Uh, in regards to the quality of our work, the excellence of it, uh, in regards to the righteousness of our deeds and the blessing that it brings. Because why? All that we do is done unto the Lord for His glory. And so the influence is the first 
has to be first, as I said, on our own souls and then through us to others. And if you have heard me uh, speak to any, any length of time, you would have heard me often pray that the Lord's will be done, His kingdom come in us and then through us. And that is exactly the idea here in this, in this parable. So, so really for us who come to the kingdom, who has received Christ as king, we need to allow the full influence of His lordship in our lives. We need to allow it to permeate every aspect of our lives. How? Well, it is to offer our lives a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, so that we would be no longer conforming ourselves to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. It is to take every thought captive and bring it in submission to Christ, into obedience to Christ. It is to set our minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth. It is to be conformed to the image of Christ. It is to plan, to pray and plan and then participate in seeking His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is really to live a holy life, a godly life, looking for and hasting the coming day of the Lord, as 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12 tells us. So it has to affect our private life and our public life. It has to affect our work and our play, our thoughts, our attitudes, our deeds. All we do and all we are must be placed under the influence of Christ's kingship in us first. And then when that has an effect on us, changes, that is when the world will be affected around us. And so the kingdom will spread its influence like leaven uh, affects everything it touches. So the kingdom of heaven should affect us, in us, and then through us, others. Um, now, of course, we, we've mentioned before, we just see this, this influence of Christ's kingship, really, um, where people of God, citizens of the kingdom, are involved in different disciplines in life. And it's, it's, it's brought a major influence in the areas of, as I said, literacy and education, healthcare and medicine, standards of business and commerce, human rights, women's rights, the treatment of the poor and unprivileged those who are in prison, and even how we treat prisoners of war, all have been influenced by those who have Christ as their Lord. And so there are some who interpret leaven here again as representing evil. And so they would see the parable as leaven permeating the kingdom of heaven here on earth and uh, Similarly to, to what the tares would be in, in the parable of the tares and the wheat. And so in this period between the first and second coming of the, of the, of the, of the king of Christ, they see that there is the mixed nature of uh, this, the kingdom. And so they argue that because leaven is often used negatively in the scriptures, um, Often it represents evil, um, and so therefore, with the with the just before Passover, they would they would celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, and so their leaven would be equated to to sin, and that they need to be removed that from their household a week before they celebrate the Passover, and so in preparation for that, clean out the leaven from your house as a symbol of really cleaning your your life. Um, God also dictated that many of the offerings that were brought to him had to contain no leaven. As there some, of the, some of the grain offerings and the, were to be brought without leaven. We see that in Leviticus 2.11 and 6.17 and 10.12. Then in the New Testament, we see that Jesus describes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees as leaven. Uh, in Matthew 16, verse 6 and, 11 to, and verses 11 to 12. And Paul warned about the sin 
uh, in the church in 1 Corinthians 5 and instruct the church that they need to clean out the old leaven of malice and wickedness. So again, leaven is equated to being evil. Uh, and in Galatians 5 verse 8 and 9, Paul called the teaching of the Judaizers, those are the, the men who came in and taught that you needed to have Jesus and to follow the, the law of Moses. And he called their actions or their teaching as leaven. And so here the parable of leaven, they interpret as being the evil, as I said, of sin, of infecting and spreading through the, the kingdom during this interim period between the first and second coming of Christ. But I think this misunderstand, this view misunderstands how leaven is used in this parable, but also in many of the other passages that I've mentioned. The point here and in many of those other passages is not that leaven is evil, but that evil act like leaven. It is, we need to remove leaven. Why? Because, well, we need to read sin as we, we need to remove leaven because as leaven influences and affects everything, so does sin. It, sin infects and affects all who come into contact with it. And so it's important for us to deal with it, to, to get rid of it from our lives, to get rid of it out of the church, not to expose ourselves to that. Because it affects, it changes it, everything it touches. And so therefore, beware the hypocrisy of the leaven is really beware the influence that the hypocrisy would have on you. Beware the teaching of the Judaizers. Beware the influence that their teaching would have on your faith. Beware the toleration of sin in the church in 1 Corinthians 5. The influence that it will have on the church body if you leave sin unaddressed. And so... This figurative use of leaven refers to its ability to spread, influence, and permeate and affect. And so therefore, if, if, if leaven is equated to sin, it means get rid of sin. But here, Jesus equates the kingdom to leaven. It is the kingdom that is mixed into the dough. And so it's the kingdom that affects the dough. The kingdom is really permeates the world. And so we need to understand that when we come to situations like this, and you see these figurative use of, of ordinary things like leaven, we need to make sure that we understand the context of the passage, but also Guard against carrying over a meaning of a, of, of, of a figurative use of, of a, an item into a different context, uh, which does not always translate. Um, examples for that would be uh, a serpent. A serpent is often used to describe Satan and, and of course, even the characteristics of, of, of Satan. And yet, Jesus equated himself to the bronze serpent which Moses lifted up in the wilderness. He says in John 3, 14, As Moses up the, uh, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Jesus in chapter 10, of verse 16 of Matthew, said to his disciples that we need to be shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves. Now, that does not mean that Jesus is like the serpent as used in other passages, or that we should act as his disciples should act wickedly. So the point I'm just trying to make is, is when we look at every passage, we need to understand it within its context and actually read what it communicates. And so the main point here is, is that the parable of the leaven speaks about the expansion of the influence of the kingdom in the world through those who are submitted to the kingship of Christ. And verses 34 and 35, Matthew again just reminds us the reason of why Jesus taught in parables. And that was to hide the truth in plain sight. We, as we saw last time or before that, that really parables 
was an act of judgment on that generation who heard Jesus the king taught but did not hear him. They saw Jesus perform miracles but they did not see him as the Christ. And they refused to believe in him. And so Jesus of Matthew says that this was to fulfill the prophecy um, of a prophet. And then he, he quotes Psalm 78 verse 2 saying, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. And really Psalm 78 is a psalm of Asaph, which was a masculine. It's, a, it's an instruction that was given. And he really instructed Israel to remember and to teach the words and the deeds of God to their children so that they would trust in the Lord and not forget His works and not be like their fathers who were stubborn and rebellious and unfaithful to God. And yet, this many centuries later, this is exactly the generation that Jesus encountered, an evil and adulterous generation who refused to believe. And he who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear, let him receive, let him believe, and let him respond to the words of Christ. And so those are the two parables that deals with Really, the expansion of the kingdom. And so what, how, how does this apply to us? How can we draw some application from these parables for our lives? And really two things. The one is knowing, and the other thing is to respond to what we know. And so here we know that the mustard seed speaks of the kingdom that will grow. And we have the, the, the benefit of seeing 2,000 years of evidence of that, that uh, the humble beginnings of the kingdom with Jesus and his few disciples in, Jerusalem, in, in Israel now has grown up to include really people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, uh, bringing immeasurable blessings to the nations of the world. It is also to know that Jesus said that this kingdom needs, to, the gospel of the kingdom needs to be proclaimed to all the nations. And then the end will come, Matthew 24, 40. It is also, we also know that this will happen as His faithful disciples go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe all that Christ taught them, commanded them. It is also to know that Jesus taught us how to pray. That we need to pray, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so knowing these things, how have we responded to them? Do we long for the return of the king? Yearn for him? Not just to what it will mean when he returns, meaning, obviously, dealing with all the many troubles we face in this world, but really long for the presence of the Prince of Peace. Do we love the Lord our King so that we would obey His commandments? Personally, but also corporately. Let me, let me be, be a little bit more specific. Are you being discipled in Christ? Are you discipling someone else in their submission to the kingship of Christ? Or are we hiding from that, steering clear of that? Don't want to expose ourselves in that way. Do we love to see Christ reign in the heart of ourselves, but also in the hearts of others? Knowing the blessing that that will bring. Do we believe that it is a blessing to be submitted to Christ as King? Do we pray that His will be done, His kingdom come? And then do we preach the gospel of the kingdom. 
Again, let me drill down a little bit more on this. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone who did not or do not believe in the Lord? This past week? This past month? Have you done it this year? Will he find us faithful and active in seeking his kingdom to come? What about the parable of the leaven, kingdom influence? Has the fact that Christ is in you, that he is dwelling in your heart, that he is reigning on the throne of your life, has that made a difference? Has it changed us? Has His Lordship permeated to every aspect of our lives or are we still withholding certain areas from Him? Are there certain rooms in our house that He is not allowed to enter? Perhaps you desire to be a godly influence. The question is, have you been influenced? How has the kingship of Christ impacted and affected and changed your life, your personal conduct, your righteousness, your godliness, your truthfulness, your humility, your service, your love. What about in your marriage? Do you follow Christ? and His teachings in your marriage? Have you submitted to that? What about your parenting? Has the kingship of Christ influenced your parenting to the point where you would follow His principles from Scripture? What about broader relationships in family or relationships in the church? Are you edifying others, encouraging others, inspiring others, confronting others, if necessary? And what about our work? Has the Lordship of Christ make you a better employer, employee? Are you more diligent, integrity? And of course, our society, our neighborhoods, those around us, are we the salt and light the Lord has called us to be? And of course, we can go on with application because it really affects and touches every aspect of our lives. But that is regarding the expansion of the kingdom. The kingdom will come, and the Lord has ordained it that we play a role in that. And that we need to fulfill our part in that. The second set of miracles we want to look at this morning is really the kingdom estimation. Again, two parables for which Jesus did not give an explanation. And it seems his disciples understood what they meant because in verse 51 he asked them, Have you understood these things? And they said to him, Yes. And really here... Jesus likens the kingdom not merely to a hidden treasure or the pearl, but really to the situation described in this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who discovers um, an invaluable treasure, and he goes away and sacrifices everything in order to gain it. And really the lesson of both these parables are essentially the same, which is that the kingdom is of great worth and that it warrants a wholehearted response that no sacrifice must be too great, no desire can, can compete with it, no other concern should be more pressing so that it would keep us from securing it for ourselves. Nothing but an exaggerated, extravagant response would be appropriate when we 
encounter the kingdom of heaven. And so the hidden treasure, here we have a man who stumbled upon a, a hidden treasure. And really the, the land of Israel served as, as a land bridge between the northern kingdoms and, and the south, uh, Egypt in the south and the northern kingdoms, Syria and Assyria and Babylon. And, and because on the, on the east of them they had the desert, so nobody could travel through that. And on the west of them they had the Mediterranean Sea. So every army and every marauding uh, ruler that wants to expand his kingdom had to travel up and down through Israel. So they were frequently invaded and ransacked. And so the best way for you to keep your treasure safe was to hide it, to dig a hole somewhere or find a cave somewhere and, and hide it. And so many buried their treasure, but it was actually rare for people to discover that treasure sort of randomly or inadvertently. Um, but here in the parable, we read of a man who discovered a hidden treasure and he leaves it there and he goes first and buys the land um, in order to possess that. You see, the, the law at that time states that if, uh, if you find a treasure on any property and you lift it up and you remove it, then the owner of that property could lay claim to that treasure, even though he may not have known it was there. And so this man was careful not to make that mistake, and so he first purchased this piece of land, and with the purchase comes the right to possession of what is buried on it. And really the point of the parable is not to comment on the legality or the morality of this man's actions, but it is really to show the, the value of the kingdom of heaven. In this man's estimation, this treasure was the best thing that ever happened to him. This treasure was invaluable, and he was willing to give up all he had, to sell everything he had, not, not reluctantly, but joyfully. He just had to have this treasure. And so, as I said, the point of this parable is that the kingdom of heaven is of infinite value and the source of immense joy, motivating one to really to give up everything and with great joy in order to gain it. Maybe, maybe I can say that differently. The cost of coming to Christ, the cost of entering the kingdom, the cost of discipleship is less by far compared to the joy it brings and the value it is. And those who know the value of the kingdom will willingly, eagerly, joyfully abandon everything to secure it. Again, there are some who, who has a different understanding or interpretation of this parable. Uh, they see Jesus as being the man and Israel being the treasure. And they reason that the kingdom is, is really not for sale and... and uh, no human treasure can buy it. Um, and that Israel is called God's treasure. Uh, in, in, in Exodus 19.5, he says that you will be my possession, literally my special treasure. And the idea is that when Jesus gave up everything he had, he, the glories in heaven... Uh, and his very blood in sacrifice in order to purchase Israel for himself. And that may sound good on the surface, but as soon as you consider the, the parable a little bit more, that interpretation breaks down. Because um, the point of the parable is the value of the treasure. That the treasure is far greater than any cost you could offer or sacrifice in order to secure it. And it is hard to think that Israel was of greater worth than the sacrifices of Christ. And it's also hard to see how Israel was found by Christ and then left and then come back uh, and, and sacrifice in order to purchase her. And so I think it's this, that interpretation is squeezing that one detail to the point becoming teary-eyed and therefore distort the meaning of the parable. 
I think the meaning here is, is just the value of the kingdom and that no cost is great, so great that one should not be willing to pay in order to gain it. But then Jesus goes on and he basically says the same thing in the parable of the great, the, the pearl. Again, he says, verse 47, ties it back to the previous parable. This time the kingdom is likened to a merchant who seeks fine pearls. And he found one of great value and the merchant recognizes the, the, valuable, the value of this pearl. And he went away and sell all that he had in order to buy this pearl of great price. As I said... But communicate the same truth, that the kingdom of heaven is of supreme value, worth giving up all that one has to gain it. But there is a slight difference between these two. Unlike the man who stumbled upon the hidden treasure, here we have a merchant who has made a living of seeking pearls. This man's life has been consumed with pearls. And I think that these two parables really represent two different ways in which people enter the kingdom, which people find salvation or come to salvation. You have the man who stumbled on the treasure. They really represent those who were never really interested in religion. They, they were not spiritual. They were not seeking God. They were not looking for spiritual treasure. They've never been to church. They've never heard. May have may never have heard the gospel, and then suddenly, they confronted with Christ, with the gospel, and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit quickened them to realize that what they have found was of immeasurable value, of incalculable worth. They have found. Jesus, their Savior. They have found Christ, their King. They have found Emmanuel, God, with us. They have found the gift of life, abundant life, eternal life. They have found the gift of redemption, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of adoption as God's children. They have found the gift of righteousness, of peace with God, of the indwelling Spirit, the gift of knowing Jesus, of following Jesus, of becoming like Jesus. And they rejoice and are willing to give up everything and to sell everything in order to gain this. They are like those who Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 65, 1. It says, God says that I allowed myself to be found by those who did not seek me. So sometimes there are people who stumble upon the gospel, but then by the Holy Spirit realize what they have discovered and sought to purchase it, gain it for themselves. The other hand, the merchant represents those who perhaps grew up in a religious environment. Perhaps it was like a Jew who followed the requirements of the law, but whose spiritual life consists of nothing more than rituals and traditions. Or maybe even, bring it to our time, someone who, who grew up in the church surrounded and engaged by uh, religious activities. Those, they may have read the Bible, they have, may have heard the gospel many times, they may have prayed even, uh, prayed to God, but often thought himself distant, far away, absent. This man or the, the, the pearl merchant represents those who would seek after God. They, they, they want to, they want to, they're looking for something. And they have maybe have gone through many valleys of doubts and, and bogs of despair, thinking, where is God? Does He even exist? Does He even know I exist? Then one day, suddenly, behold, they discover the pearl of great price. And he's right before them. And they hear him say, Come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
and no more marvelous sight have their eyes ever seen the face of Jesus in the words of the gospel. No sweeter sound have their their ears ever heard the voice of his calling saying, come. And they go and gladly sell all that they had, all their pulls of religion, all their pulls of good works, in order to gain this greatest of pulls, Christ the King and His kingdom. They are those who were often asking, were asking and kept on asking, were seeking and kept on seeking, was knocking and kept on knocking. And then the Lord, in His grace and in His timing, allowed them to receive, allowed them to found, find, allowed them to open, be, the door to be open to them. Now, I don't know where you are in that experience, whether you met the Lord suddenly from a life of sin and suddenly you discovered Christ, or that you have grown up in the church, in religious circles all your life, and, and then the Lord opened your eyes to the glories of Christ. Perhaps you still have not done so. Perhaps you have not found Him yet. Perhaps you have not discovered the treasure that's hidden, the pearl of great price. Even though He's not far off and He's not hard to find. And really, if that is you this morning, then I pray that you will find Christ. That you would come to the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you would know that you are a great sinner. But that Jesus is a great Savior. And that you will with joy turn to Him. Repent of your sins and receive this great treasure, this great pearl. See, the lessons that we can learn from these parables is that both of these men, the one who found the hidden treasure and the one who found the pearl, they recognized the value of what they discovered. Both men saw the immeasurable value of Christ, that saving relationship with Christ. That's that's what the merchant found. The merchant found after years of religion, found the pearl of great price. He's he's like like Paul. Paul who, who grew up as a Pharisee, most of his life pursued God through the traditions of his forefathers. And then he found the pearl. Or should we say the pearl found him? And he said, whatever things was gained for me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things are lost in the view of the surpassing value of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul found the great Paul. The man who found the treasure would probably be someone like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He was not a religious man. Um, But one day Jesus came into his town and he thought he'd like to see Jesus but because of his short stature he climbed up a tree in order to wait for Jesus to pass by and lo and behold Jesus stopped under the tree and said Zacchaeus come down 
Hurry down, for today I have to dine in your house. And Zacchaeus has found a great treasure, or again, the treasure found him. Uh, and he responded by giving half of his possessions away and repaying four times those he may have defrauded, which probably took the other half of his possessions. But he had to have Jesus. And so both men recognized the value of what they found. Both men also recognized or was determined to take it, to have it, to make it their own. They just have to have it. And to gain the kingdom really is to realize the value, but then it is desiring it for yourself. That you would need to want it, to desire it. I mean, I, I remember uh, back in England when we lived there and I was a new believer and I would, that's when I discovered the hideousness of postmodernism thinking and you would share the gospel with someone, you would bleed gospel over their carpet and then afterward they say to you, oh, that's sweet, I can see it means a lot to you. But not for me. They did not want it. They did not desire it. They did not see the value in it. And they did not desire it for themselves. Because coming to, to possess the treasure and the pearl of great price, you need to make a personal decision. You need to make a deliberate decision to exercise the faith that the Spirit of God is quicker in you in order to desire Christ and His kingdom. And then both of them sold all that they had to purchase it. Both of them gave up. Really, no cost was too great for them. They counted the cost. And they reckoned, listen, this is going to cost me everything. But they joyfully was willing to give up everything, to sell everything, to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow after Jesus. They... they understood that what good is it for a man to gain his life but to forfeit his soul. They were not like the rich young ruler who for the love of money refused to follow Jesus. And the fourth one, they both acquired this price, this treasure, this pearl. They made it their own. They discovered it. They believed it. They acted at great cost to themselves by giving up, selling what they had to gain what is infinitely more valuable. And in doing so, they received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3. They received the riches of Christ's glory, the inheritance of the saints or in the saints, Ephesians 1.18. They received an inheritance, an eternal inheritance, imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven by the power of God through faith. 1 Peter 4, uh, 1 verses 4 to 5. They discovered Christ in them, the hope of glory. The blessing of having Christ indwells Him through the Spirit, who dwells in their hearts through faith. They discovered the peace and the fellowship they have with God. And so the cost of coming to Christ the cost of entering the kingdom, the cost of discipleship is less by far compared to the value it is and the joy it brings. So these are the two parables or sets of parables that Jesus taught us about the kingdom. First, the expansion of the kingdom, that it will grow both in size and in influence. And also the estimation of the kingdom, that it is invaluable, worth far more whatever it may cost us to gain it, to enter into it. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for Lord, just reminding us, Lord, this morning of, of your kingdom, that, that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, that you have 
by your grace, included us in your plans and your purposes so that we have our role to play. And so, Lord, I pray, help us to pray for your kingdom to come. Help us to plan for your kingdom to come. Help us to be engaged in evangelism so your kingdom will come in the hearts of men and women and that you will rule and reign over them and that the change that you will work in us, Lord, the influence that you, that the Lordship of Christ over our lives have on our lives, Lord, would also influence those around us. And Lord, thank you for reminding us of the great gift of our salvation. That no matter the cost, no matter how hard and how difficult it is, knowing you and being with you is worth greater by far. And we rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.